I want you to think about a time in your life, if you've had one, and think about a moment in your life where you were so humbled that it changed the way you lived. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it really hard. Think back of a moment in time where you were so humbled that something happened in your life that it brought you to a place where you said, from this moment on, for the rest of my life, I cannot live any longer in the same way that I had just lived. I want you to think about that moment. And I also want you to have that moment in your mind throughout this sermon. Because I'm afraid that in church, in society, we have one or two kinds of people. And I'm going to turn you to those two types of people before we jump into our main text for the night. This morning is not evening. It won't be evening for a while. Luke 18. Turn with me to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke. That was pretty easy. I'm going to read you a parable of the two kinds of people that we're going to find in our, our world, in our society, and they're going to be dealt with the same question that you have been dealing with right now in the introduction, is that are you so humbled that it's going to change the way you live? This is what it says in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Follow with me if you're there in verse 9. He has told this parable, this is Christ, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, we live in a society where we're going to come face to face, even when we look into the own, our own mirror, to be one or two of these people. We're either going to be the Pharisee, or in our language, we're going to be the one who goes to church every single week, who every single time the offering bag gets uh, passed around, you're always putting money in it. You serve every single week. You're at every life group that we have, and you do all the things that you need to do to check the marks of saying, I do the right thing, therefore I am right, and I am righteous in the sight of God because I do these things. Or, you're going to be the tax collector, or who in this context is the one who realizes that my life is sinful. Being a tax collector and part of the IRS today doesn't necessarily mean you're sinful. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing right either. But in that time, it did. To be a tax collector in that context meant that most likely you were not only taking taxes for Rome, you were also stealing from people on top of the taxes that were already owed. So the odds are that you were a thief, you were, you were an extortioner, like the Pharisee said. So the Pharisee wasn't wrong, mind you. The Pharisee was saying, this is what the tax collector is. Where the Pharisee was wrong is to say, he's all these things, but I'm not. 
See, that's the problem. But I hope that many of you, as a tax collector, see that you yourself are in sin, have lived in sin, and your life is characterized and by nature sin. And this tax collector knew the position that he held in the sight of God was that of a sinner, unworthy of what God had to offer him. And so he stood there, not even lifting his head to heaven, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says all this to end with a statement, if you want to exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But if you want to humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Which is the state that we find ourselves in as Christians, and I say Christians in the meaning of the word that not a carnal Christian, if there ever was one, no such thing, not a societal Christian, not a cultural Christian. I'm talking about a Christian who was at one time in their life been the tax collector who couldn't even lift their head up into to the throne of God because he was so unworthy and so convicted of his sinful life that he sat there in that moment so humbled that he repented of his sinful life, his extortioning, his stealing, his thievery, and him living a life completely opposite of God and saying, God, I am sorry. Be merciful to me. I turn away from my sins and I'm going to follow you. If you've never been in that point, then scripturally speaking, you are not a Christian. But for those who have, we also have to come to this realization that we can't transform from a tax collector to a Pharisee, to someone who says, you know what, uh, yeah, that one time I remember, I was, it was a bad day, I was emotional, and I got down on my knees, and I just said, God, I can't do this, and I give it all to you. And then you become a, a Pharisee, because the Pharisee never was justified. Although, if you asked him, he would tell you, of course I'm justified. I do all the right things, I say the right things, I go to church, and I do all the things I need to do. So mind you that being a Pharisee is not salvation, and being a tax collector without repentance is not salvation either. But we all have to have got to a point in our lives where we were like the tax collector, and that we were repentant. And we turn away from our sins, not in a moment of shame and grief, but in a lifetime of gratitude and thanksgiving for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf by Christ. Now, because I'm that, I can never be a Pharisee. And so the warning also this morning is if you are a Pharisee, ask yourself, were you ever a tax collector that was repented and trusted in Christ for your own salvation? And I say that because I want to point you, you don't have to flip to it, but I want you to jot down Romans 12.3, because there's a real truth that you and I have to hammer into our lives and our minds this morning, and it's this, Romans 12.3, Paul says to the church in Rome, that we must not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We must not think about ourselves more highly than we ought to. As a matter of fact, it keeps going, it says you actually need to look at yourself with sober judgment. And the problem in our lives unchecked from accountability and community, is we aren't keen to look at ourselves of how we truly are. You and I do not like being face-to-face with what's wrong with us. We oftentimes want to just focus on the things that are right about us. And the good news of the gospel has to require you to take an honest look and evaluate yourself in light of what you do not have. And what you do not have are things like the ability to have righteousness on your own, uh, the ability to be pleasing in the sight of God, 
or even the capacity to love God outside of God giving you the power and the ability to love Him. The all things that you cannot do. Now, if you're a Christian in here, the rest of this message is going to be good news. If you're not a Christian in here, this is going to be good news too. Because you can leave here completely changed. But as Christians, we must humbly embrace our status as God's children. It's a status. It's a lofty status. But it is not taken in the posture of a Pharisee. The salvation that we receive in Christ is always taken in the posture of a repentant sinner. And when we humbly embrace our status as God's children, we realize, and that's when we truly realize, that God has rescued us from the control of sin and placed us under the authority of Christ in whom we have been purchased from the penalty of sin. Now there's a, there's a cost if we don't do this. See, if we don't remember the, the payment that has been paid on your behalf, the cost of your sin, and the problem that you had before a holy God, even as a Christian, even if you just, you're saved and you said, you know, it's just been years since I've thought about this. There's, there's something that's going to cost you, and it's this. That if you don't remember this payment that was necessary for Christ to make on your behalf, it was going to cause you to capitulate into sin for the rest of your life. You know that capitulate? It means just over and over again, if you as a Christian, even as a Christian, I'm talking to the born-again Christian if you cannot remember this and put this in your mind over and over and over again for the rest of your life, you can still live in this life under a burdensome load of sin. And that's a problem. Because you can be redeemed and at, whew, this is, you can be redeemed and be still living in sin. But nobody who re, is going to be truly redeemed is going to continue living in sin. So like I've talked about, I think, last week, you're going to have this conflict. And the conflict is going to be this. You can live in sin as a Christian for a while, but there comes to a point where there's this threshold that's reached that you either need to turn away from that sin or you must confess that you never really were saved. There is a threshold, and the problem that we're going to run into is if we don't continually thank God for what He has done for us, if we don't continually humble ourselves before the cross and keep our eyes on Christ and confess our need for Him, we're going to be questioning our salvation for the rest of our lives. And that's at best. At worst, you're going to live your whole life like a Pharisee thinking you're saved and you never were. And you're going to do, a, you're going to do what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 7. You're going to, he's going to say, there are many of you who said, Lord, Lord, and called me Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's a problem. That's dangerous. And so whether you're in here and you've been saying, Lord, 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 because I've been going to church, or you're in here saying, you know, I actually, I have been a Christian. I have repented of my sins and trusted in Christ, not in a moment of, of grief, but in a lifetime of realization that I'm not pleasing to God. And it takes Christ, who is eternally pleasing to God, to make me right with God. Even if you're that person, you both have to make a decision today. And this isn't recommitting your life to Christ. This is just saying, I'm going to commit to the, the life that Christ has called me to live. <clears throat> and I say this because as I turn you to Colossians chapter 1, and go ahead and turn there in your Bible, Paul is in the last two verses uh, of his thanksgiving and his prayer, pericope here in uh, chapter 1 of Colossians. He's wrapping up this thanksgiving and praise that he's been giving to the God on behalf of the Colossians. But for us in here, we're going to take it in one or two ways. We're going to take it as it is, as a thanksgiving, 
right, of the reminder of what God has done on your behalf. But for some of you in here, some of you in here, this is not just going to be a reminder. This is going to be the first time you've ever been introduced to the stark reality that faces everyone who is not in Christ, who has not been imputed and enclosed in the righteousness of Christ. And so in two ways, I want to preach this message. One is a reminder to you who are saved, and two, to inform those who aren't of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Pastor Evan read it to you, but in brief, I'll give you a summary of it. Verse 12 of Colossians 1 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. See, Paul spent these last 12 verses, and he said, look, you've been redeemed, you have been transferred, uh, you have been given and qualified for an inheritance, and you're like, oh, these things are great. And I'm going to preach to you these two verses, but you can't forget something. You can't forget that what Paul is saying is in response to everything else he has just said. He's, this is the truth about where you are as a Christian in verses 12 through 14. But in light of that, it requires you to live in a way that he said in the first 10 verses here. And this is right here. I thank God because we've heard of your faith. So what 12 through 14 does is it gives you a life where you can have faith in Christ. It gives you a life that you can have love for the saints. It gives you hope in the inheritance that you have waiting for you in heaven, according to verse 3 or verse 5. Uh, verse uh, 9, uh, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. You can know God's will because of verses 12 through 14. What else can we know? We can have the knowledge of God. We can bear fruit in every good work. We can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious mights. We can be given endurance and strength and joy in those things because of verses 12 through 14. And so I was tempted in the beginning of this sermon series to preach 12 through 14 first. Because 12 through 14 is the key to 1 through 10, 11. 1 through 11. No. 1 through 10. No. Yeah, 1 through 11. I'll get there eventually. And it's the key. And if you don't understand these next two verses, you're going to be completely clouded and what everything else that was just preached before. And so I want you to pay attention here. And if you've been wondering and you have been saying this whole sermon series that you've been here, you're saying, I don't get it. How can I get these things? Or why doesn't my life look like these? You're going to find out today in these scriptures. And the first one starts out this way in verse 12. And that says that our disqualification is deeper than mistakes we've made. It comes from who we are. Okay, and this is a message that society is not going to teach you. You're only going to learn this from the Word of God. And so if you've never been told this before, you're going to have, we're going to have to go to God's Word, and we're going to have to understand what does this mean. That you are not disqualified because you stole candy from the grocery store. Okay, because we have good news in verse, in verse 12 here that we're going to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us. So if it took the Father qualifying us, we understand that without the Father, we are disqualified. Right? We don't have a qualification. The qualification isn't in among ourselves. And so we have to ask, how did I lose my qualification? Or how am I unqualified? Well, it comes down to this understanding that we've got to believe that it's not because I broke a commandment that I don't qualify. Right? It isn't because you got in a fight with your spouse this morning, or you got mad at your sibling or that you lied to your boss. As a matter of fact, it is your very nature. It's who you are. Right? You are a sinner. You do sin, but you sin out of the capacity of you and your nature being 
a sinner. And you say, where do you find that? Well, here's a verse to jot down, Psalm 51.5. Speaking of Psalm 51.5, an imprecatory psalm by the, uh, the psalmist, or by King David, who's uh, actually spending this Psalm 51, repenting of his own sin. And this is what he has to say about his own sin. He says, behold, in verse 5 in chapter 51 of Psalm, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So what is King David saying? He's like, I didn't just become a a sinner today. I didn't just start sinning when I looked over the balcony and saw Bathsheba bathing over there and then taking her her husband and thrusting him in front of the army and to be shot down by an archer in the tower. I didn't become a sinner when I took her and I impregnated her and now she's about to have a child that was with a man who isn't her husband. I didn't become a sinner when that happened. He says, as a matter of fact, I was born this way. I was brought forth in sin, and it was in sin that I was conceived. Today, we either need the reminder or we need, for the first time, the information that we were born into sin. You didn't become a sinner. You were born into sin. You were conceived into sin. And what that means is is you were unqualified. You were not fit for the kingdom of God. That you were not fit and you were not worthy to receive that in which God had to offer. i tell you, you need bad news, right? Because the good news is we're going to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you. But you got to understand that you ain't qualified because you're pretty. Right? You're not qualified because you're less bad than your neighbor. Right? You're not qualified because when you look at your list of your brothers and sisters, you're the best one. Because like, you're the worst in the sight of God. You are. I mean, you're the worst. And according to Romans 12, we've got to look at ourselves and say, I can't think of myself more highly than I ought to. There's nothing going to put you in the right framework than Scripture. And Scripture is always going to shed light on you, and you're going to look in the mirror, and you're going to say, I'm pretty ugly. That's what Scripture does, and that's a good thing. Because if you look at Scripture and it paints you as a pretty picture, you have to wonder, then what was Jesus necessary for? And I'm going to say it was very necessary and he was so necessary that I need you to do this, and it's point number one, is you need to recall the depth of your disqualification. You need to spend time, as you read through Scripture, and we do this regularly through our daily Bible reading, if you don't follow us along with that, every single year our church reads through the Bible, every single year. Uh, and so right now, we're jumping through the New Testament, we're, we're in Isaiah, we're, we're, we're running through uh, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, and you can jump on board. Go to compasshillcountry.org and hit our tab that says Daily Bible Reading, and you can read. And I promise you, it doesn't take you long when you're reading with us on a daily basis that you're going to find I'm a pretty uh, twisted person. Right? I'm a pretty sinful individual. And Scripture is going to reveal that to you. But it's important and it's imperative for you and I to take time in our own lives to recall the depth of our depravity. Because if it was God who did qualified, you know that word qualified means to make fit, to make worthy. God made you fit and made you worthy to give you what he was going to give you. And we have to understand what made us unworthy. Well, flip to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, go ahead and flip there. I like to hear pages flipping in your Bibles. They're not just uh, table weights and paper weights. Flip through there in Ephesians 2. You'll be in verses 1 through 3. This is the depth of your disqualification in three verses. 
Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You ever been dead? Well, the answer is yes. But have you ever, uh, not to get morbid, I won't get morbid, I'll use something unmorbid. Uh, if I took a battery out of my remote, because my remote's not working anymore and it's dead, and I threw that battery to you and I said, hey, go put that in your remote. What's that battery going to do? Nothing. Right? It's not going to do anything. You know what would qualify that remote? If, if, if I pushed power and the TV came on. But that battery is unqualified to be a battery that's going to work. It's not going to work. So it's disqualified for the very purpose that it was created for. And so for you, what I'm trying to say is when you're dead in your trespasses, you can do nothing. Right? So how did you come to God? You didn't. He brought you to himself because you were dead. You didn't do anything. You go try to get a dead thing to do anything. It can't. Neither can we, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Right, verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I lived for myself. I did not live for the Lord. And according to verse 3, there's something that I need to understand about the nature of who I am. The nature of who I am, according to verse 3, is this. that By nature, I was a child of wrath. Scripture paints a very clear picture juxtaposed together, and it's this. That you are either a child of God or a child of wrath. There is no middle ground here. There is no, like, I can be kind of both and. Because according to be a child of wrath, that means I'm doing this. I'm carrying out the desires of my own body and my own mind. Right, that I, the passions of my flesh are the things that are carrying me through the day, through my week, and through my month. And actually, it's, it's, the same, it's uh, fueled by the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which is most of the world. And so what, what I'm saying is when your life looks like the world, when your flesh and your passions of your flesh are carrying you in the same direction as the rest of the world, it is very uh, clear to you that you could... Label yourself a child of God's wrath. Because being a child of God looks completely different than Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And so what you need to do either this morning is you need to recognize that for the first time or you need to recall when you were a child of wrath. Because when you do that, you're going to do like the tax collector and you're going to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for qualifying me. Thank you that you qualified me to share in the promise that you have for me. But we need to acknowledge our unworthiness. We need to hate our sin as much as God. Think about it. Do you hate your sin as much as God hates your sin? I mean, I want you to think about that for a minute. Like, for instance, do you hate your sin so much that you're going to get up and do something about it? Because God hates your sin so much that Christ, at the right hand of the Father, enthroned in heaven, stood, stood down, stepped down from his throne, and came to earth to take care of it. Do you hate your sin that much? You wouldn't even get out of bed to deal with your sin. And he left the realms of heaven to deal with your sin. And I just wonder, do you take sin as seriously as God takes sin? And if you don't, the problem is, is sin as bad to you as it really is? Do you see sin for what it really is? Because if you did, you would see the need for everyone to come to know Christ. If you saw sin as bad as it is, you wouldn't be living in your life carrying your desires of your body and your mind into your, into your faith. 
Now, thirdly, especially if you're a Christian in here, uh, does this depth of your own disqualification, does that drive your thanksgiving to God? I mean, when you sit and you pray to God, and do you really spend time giving thanks to God because you were disqualified? Because you did not qualify to be in the presence of God? I mean, do you spend much of your time giving thanks to God that He qualified you, that He made you fit? Like, you didn't fit, okay? You're like a, you're like a square peg in a round hole. You didn't fit. And He didn't throw you away. He came and He made you fit. He chiseled around, He made you fit, and He put you in Christ. Therefore, you fit because you're in Christ. You didn't fit because you did something. As a matter of fact, you were dead. You couldn't do anything. I want, us to, I want us to sit in point one as we go through the rest of the sermon because if you don't get the disqualification that you sit under, the rest of this stuff is just going to look like, I was worth it. I was worth it the whole time. He came down because I'm pretty. He came down because I'm the best looking one. Okay, but that's not the truth. The truth is, is we were dead and we were ugly and we were smelly and we were wallowing around in our own sin. So keep that in mind because here's, here's some good news. Our sin required an extraction mission that you and I were incapable of, co- of accomplishing, and it cost Christ his life. I want you to look at a couple of these verses for me in Colossians, and the first one is the second part of verse 13. Okay, here's the, here's the news. Actually, the first part of verse 13, right? You have, or he, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So that's one area I want you to underline if, if you write in your Bible. If you don't, write it in a note on your note sheet. Right? You, or he, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's a good part to, to underline. But I also want you to skip to verse 14. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. And verse 14 says that in whom, this is in Christ, we have been redeemed. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These two theological words are going to be really important for you, both the word delivered and the word redemption. And I need to spend some time on it because you have probably heard this word so many times that you just gloss over it and you just throw this, interject this meaning within the word that isn't there. The first one is this, that you have been delivered. That is a biblical word that says the word rescue. That's what it means. You've been rescued. So here, that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and it is in him that we have redemption. Okay? What is the word redemption? What does that mean? A synonym for redemption is that you've been purchased or bought. Now, does that language sound familiar to you? That language is first century language for slave purchasing. It is a, it's slave language. And before you get all like oh, tense because you live in America and we have this history of this, like you've got to realize one, something here. Half of the Roman Empire had been enslaved. Half the Roman Empire had been enslaved in some form or fashion. So this language was very piercing to them because as soon as he said that you have been redeemed, they thought, oh, That means I was owned by something, and now I'm owned by something else. And so that is the most clear language that we can use to describe something that happened to you and I when we repented of our sins and we trusted in Christ because we realized that we were owned by sin, and now we are owned by God. I'm going to give you some worse news. 50% of the Roman Empire was enslaved, but 100% of our world is enslaved. Okay, So I want you to think about that right now. Before you say, well, I don't want God to own me. Well, you are owned. You were born into being owned by sin. 
There was no other option for you. And the good news and the great news is the king of the universe has decided to purchase you. Not because you look good, not because you look pretty, but because he loved his image. Genesis 1, and God made them male and female, and he made them in his image. Do you know what's redeemable about you? Do you know what's worthy about you? That which is worthy and redeemable in you is the same thing that is worthy and redeemable in every human being in the history of the world. And that you were made in the image of God. So God saw that what was worthy in you was himself. And why is that important? Because God wants to redeem what's his. And God has a, a passion and a desire and a mission to redeem his broken image in a society that needs it. But for you and for me, we need to do this, and it's point number two. We need to grasp the costliness of your deliverance. Grasp the costliness of your deliverance. See, if, if what is redeemable in you is something that God wants, and God does want, God always wants to see his image restored because there's nothing glorifying to God in his image being distorted and abused and used for the passions of the flesh and for the desires of my mind and my body to take over. Like, I am made in God's image. God has created me and purchased me and purposed me for his good and for his glory. So, of course, God wants to save the lost. He wants to take that broken image and restore it. But we got to understand that there's a costliness that goes with that. Because there's a costliness to those who aren't restored. According to Ephesians 2, that we're, nature, we're by nature children of wrath. We walked away from God. We had no capacity to love God. But yet, there was a deliverance, and it cost Christ his life. Uh, I haven't watched this movie in a very long time, but odds are you have. Uh, in Saving Private Ryan, there was uh, Tom Hanks was given a mission along with uh, eight of his companions, or seven, I think there was eight of them in total, with seven of his companions to go into war-torn Europe during World War II and save a soldier named Private Ryan. Now, the reason was because Private Ryan's siblings had all died in World War II, and his previous brother died before in a different war. And the military did not want his mother to not have any children because they all had been murdered or killed in war. And so these eight men went into war-torn Europe to find Private Ryan to take him and to transfer him out of war back home with his mother. Now, the good news is they did. The bad news is every single soldier that went with him besides two died. Every one of them but two died. And at the end of this movie, uh, Private Ryan is standing in front of the grave of Tom Hanks, and he just sits there, and he spends time at the end of this movie, and he says, I hope that my life has been worthy of the sacrifice that you guys have made for me to be here today. Now, that sounds touching, doesn't it? The good guys went and saved a good guy to get the good guy back to the good home. 
Okay, I want to change the plot up for you a little bit. Okay, let's mix that up again. Okay, here's the real plot. Okay, here's the plot. The plot is this. That Tom Hanks grabs seven of his best buddies, and then he goes into the throes, into the depth of World War II in war-torn Europe, and in the middle of the biggest battle going on in Europe, there is a Nazi soldier who's getting shot at, and he's wounded, and he can't get help, and he can't get out, and the mission of these eight guys is to go and get this Nazi soldier and get him to freedom, and to get him to safety. And then they get in there, and all of them die, besides the two guys that get this Nazi soldier out, and takes him to safety, security, and freedom. That sound like a better plot? That's called the gospel, right? That is the plot. Like you weren't the good guy who got put in a bad situation. You were the bad guy. You have always been the bad guy, and the good guy was Christ, who came to redeem you from a bad situation to transfer you into the kingdom of light. And that, my friends, is the gospel. And so if you have a problem seeing that plot as a good thing, then you have an issue with seeing the gospel as a good thing, because that is the picture of the gospel that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were by nature children of wrath, and it cost Christ his life to deliver bad people to good news. I'll take you to this scripture, 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. The Apostle Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the picture. This is the gospel. That is the gospel summed up. For Christ, the anointed one, you know, Christ is not his last name, right? His name wasn't Jesus Christ. He was Jesus the Christ, right? The anointed one, the chosen one, the one who is going to bring redemption to the world. That's what his name Christ means. He's He is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So he came for the Savior of the world, suffered once for sin, himself for yourself, himself for myself, that we might be brought to God. This is where we sit outside of Christ, is you cannot be in the presence of God. And if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what does, because that is the most fearful thing in my life, is that I understand that God owns the universe. You know who owns hell? It isn't Satan. God owns hell. God owns heaven. God owns the universe. God is the creator of the universe. He upholds the universe with his righteous right hand. The earth is his footstool, as scripture says. And I've got to understand something. That if I can't be in the presence of God, where do I go? If he owns it all, where do I go? And scripture makes it clear. We go out of his presence. Like the worst thing about hell is not going to be that it hurts. The worst thing about hell is that the the presence of God does not exist there. Okay, and here's the problem with many people not understanding the costliness of our deliverance. Who says, shouldn't everyone go to heaven? Right? Isn't sin's not that bad? I mean, we can make it. I mean, we can be okay. And what I'm saying is this. You don't realize the depth of your despair and your depravity when you think that you should just be able to stand in front of God because you look good or because you're not as bad as as the Nazi army here. Because here's the problem. If you don't see not being in the presence of God as a bad thing, then you're not going to like heaven. Because what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. 
And if we can't appreciate and desire and want the presence of God here on earth, why would we ever enjoy it in heaven? And we need to understand the costliness that God sent his son to earth that we might become righteous because of Christ. That he traded the righteousness for unrighteousness that we might be brought to God. You see, the most treasurable thing in our salvation is not the things that we get, which we're going to get there. We do get things. But it's in whose possession that we're in. It's that we are purchased. We are doulos, Greek word for slaves, that you see all throughout Scripture that you're actually going to see a lot in the letter to Colossians. We are slaves of God, but we are also children of God. You see, like I said earlier about recalling the depth of your disqualification and spending time thinking about that, you also need to be spending time thanking God for rescuing you. Unless you never have. Unless you sit here right now and you said, you know what, I've never thought about that. Well, that, my friends, is the gospel. It's the only way to think about that. And so if you have never come face-to-face with the gospel, this would be your opportunity not to sit there and thank God for, for rescuing you because he hasn't. This would be your opportunity to sit before, to stand before God or kneel before God like a tax collector, standing far off with your head down, saying, God, woe is me, a sinner. I am unclean, I am defiled, and before you, I am unrighteous and unclean and dirty and filthy. And this would be your opportunity and before the presence of God to say, I repent and I turn away from my sins, a life lived for myself, and I want to follow you. God, I cannot do this on my own. I am unrighteous. You are righteous. You have traded your righteousness for my unrighteousness that I might be in your presence. And God, today, that's a decision I make, to repent of my sins and to trust in you. If you've done that, if that is something you've done in your life, you need to spend time thanking God for rescuing you. Right? That's the right order there. Now we can thank God for rescuing us. And if you are saved in here and you are a Christian, you've been rescued and you've been delivered by Christ, you need to think about this. You need to make your thankful list longer than your wish list. And you laugh because it's, I mean, how many of us do that? I mean, I'm going to spend 45 minutes of my prayer time. And you're like, 45 minutes, that's a long time. All right, well, if you're not praying that long, then come talk to me. You need to be praying, okay? I'm trying to, I was going to talk about statistics of prayer, but we're back on here. Okay. Most of us spend so much of our time asking God for more and not thanking God for what we have. And I'm not just talking about what money you're making, what car you have, what house you have. I'm like, you are redeemed. You were dead. Like, you were dead. Like, you are now alive. If you can't thank God for that, I mean, I don't know what's wrong with you. I think you might not be alive if you can't thank God for that. And we got to thank God for what he has done. And our thankful list needs to be a lot longer than our wish list. You know why I know that to be true, biblically speaking? We're in all of these verses here, verses 1 through 14 in Colossians. It's all a thank list. It's Paul thanking God for the faith of the Colossians. And that's just the Colossians. Paul probably spent all of his day in prayer as he's thanking God for all that he's done in the lives of all the churches that he is over and all the things that God has done in his own life, least of which was not his own uh, experience with Christ on the road to Damascus where Christ had blinded him, put him in his place on the road to Damascus and brought him into salvation in Christ and said, now you're going to work for me. You were killing people because of me. Now you're going to work for me. We talk about redemption, but that's all of us. And then what we, secondly, what we need to do after we spend time thinking God more than what we're wishing God would do is we need to look at sin as serious as God does. 
I'm going to reiterate that and reiterate and reiterate that, but we need to look at sin as serious as God does. God thought sin was so serious that he had to do something about it. Do you see your sin as so serious that you've got to do something about it? Most of the time we want to cover it up. We want to cover it up, we don't want to think about it, we want to move on from it. But if it was serious enough to God that the Son of God had to die, who was God, right? Wasn't a lesser God, wasn't a lesser being, he was God. God came and God died that God may bring you to himself. That's how bad sin was to God. You see, now here's the really good news, okay? You've been redeemed, but there's a new location that we've been placed into. And our new location in Christ's kingdom changes our attitude and our actions. I want you to look at verse, the second part of verse 12 and the second part of verse 13. Go up, go up and look at it with me. Second part of verse 13. I'll just read the whole verse give you the context. So he has now delivered us, he has saved us from the domain of darkness, and he has now transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, and so that you don't skip over that, I want you to spend some time thinking about it, okay? Uh, you know what? College students in here, okay? I did this. My, after my freshman year, I transferred colleges. I went to East Texas Baptist University for a year, and then I transferred to Texas A&M University Commerce. Not, yeah, the other one, Okay. I transferred. And you know what happened? Everything, right? My mascot changed, my logo changed, my education changed, everything changed. You know what I no longer said? I no longer said I went to East Texas Baptist University because I didn't. I didn't belong there. I didn't go there. I, gave, I, I changed everything, okay? I have no transcript there. They have none of my information. It was bought and it was transferred and put all in the possession of A&M Commerce. That's a great little way for you as a college student to know. That's what it means to be transferred. Now, this is also more of a... a, a term used in war, okay? A captive taken in war, and you're taking from this camp, and I have captured you. You are now mine, and I'm taking you to my camp, and you are now mine. Your jersey looks different. Your language is going to change. The mission is going to change, and that is what happened here in verses 12 and 13, is you have been transferred to a different place, a different kingdom, and it's not the kingdom of the world. It's not, the, it's not no longer my passions and my flesh caring about the desires of my body and my mind. It is now me living into subjection into, uh, of who owns me, and that is Christ. Then verse 4, uh, what is it? Verse uh, 13b. Well, that's where I just was. Oh, verse 12b. I'm sorry. I probably confused you guys a little bit. Here we go. The giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So we have, these, we have these two places. You've been given to the kingdom of God. You've been transferred over there. And over there, you also have this inheritance that you get to share in. Now, for some of you, you know, Bible whizzes in here, if you're like, you know what? He hasn't brought up one of the most important things in the context of Colossians 1, 12 through 14. I'll just give it to you. This language is talking about the Old Testament. You have been qualified to share in an inheritance. You know who was qualified to share in an inheritance in the Old Testament? Israel. Right? And Israel was given allotments of land that they were given called the promised land. Right? Canaan land. You, read, you sing about it in Sunday school. Okay? And then it also says something here in verse 13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You know what happened to the Israelites? They were taken into captivity by... Egypt, right? So they were, in fact, enslaved by Egypt, but there was still the first covenant, which the first covenant promises said what? That I have a promise for you, that I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great number of people, and I'm going to bring you out of slavery. I'm going to bring you into the land of promise there in Canaan. And what happened? 
They were given this promise. They were enslaved by the Egypts. And then God brought them from the domain of darkness. And he carried them through the desert. And then he posited them in the land that he had promised to them. Now, you remember the Colossians. I hope you remember this. Colossians didn't have the New Testament. Where he was, the New Testament was being written. Paul's literally writing the New Testament as, we, as they're speaking to him. So they know everything they know about Jesus from two things. The Old Testament and the testimony of the apostles. And so it was imperative for the, for the apostles to teach them biblical truths from the Old Testament that transcribe to the New Testament. So why, and the Old Testament is very important for you and I as Christians today. Okay? But what we have to understand is these promises that God had enacted in the first covenant were promises that he fulfilled. Now, go into Hebrews. Hebrews 8 through 10. You don't have to write it down if you want to fact check me later. Because a lot of you like doing that, which is good. Good Be a good Berean. Go to Hebrews 8 through 10. And it talks about the problem with this first covenant. The problem with this first covenant is that it, it was lacking. Not that God was lacking, but God was using the first covenant to bring about a better covenant. And Hebrews 8 through 10 describes this entire passage in great detail in saying this. That if the first covenant was perfect, God wouldn't have created a second covenant. And as it was, that covenant was lacking. And so God made a second covenant and a better covenant. And that covenant says this. That covenant says that I am going to put my word and my law on your hearts and in your minds. That covenant says that I'm going to make you my people and I'm going to be your God. That covenant is no longer a covenant about passing land in an earth that's decaying, that promise is the promise enacted in the cross of Christ. That promise was brought by by the second covenant that says there's going to be a deliverance and I'm not going to deliver you out of the hands of Egypt. I'm going to deliver you out of the hands of sin and I'm going to bring you into my kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a place that does not perish and a place where your inheritance is stored up until the time comes where it will be revealed to you. <clears throat> now, I also want you to understand this, and this uh, your inheritance. You know you've been transferred, you know you've got a new covenant, there's a place you're going, but you also have an inheritance. There's something that you're going to receive. And that brings me to point three, and that means you need to embrace the implications of your transfer. You need to embrace the implications of your transfer. You're going to receive something. There's an inheritance for you, but that inheritance for you is enacted on the fact that you're going to live in light of the inheritance that you're going to receive. That means as Christians, we no longer live in the passions of our flesh. We no longer carry out the desires of our own body and our own mind. That means we're living for a different kingdom because we're no longer of this world. We're of the kingdom of God. Now here's, here's a word that I don't want you to glaze over when I say it. I want you to, I want you to zoom in. Okay, and it's the word eschatology. Okay? And this word eschatology just means this. It's the study of last things. And in the Christian faith, I can't tell you there's, there's nothing more important than what you believe about the last things. Okay, and the problem is, is, as a pastor, my goal is always to bring those things that are up here, those ethereal, lofty things that are hard for you to grasp, and bring them down to a place where you can, you can hold it. The problem is, is you can't do that with the Christian faith. The problem is that so much of the gospel and so much about what God has in store for those who love him and are called according to his purpose are things that I can't touch and I can't feel and I can't see and I can't hear. And that's what makes them lovely and amazing and great because I'm incapable of doing it. 
Would you believe how hard it'd be to love a God who just gives you all the things that you can think about and imagine? That's not God. That's your figment of God. Right? I, whew, didn't mean to, I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to go here now. I was reading a, I was reading a story last night about near-death experiences. And they said in this near-death experience, this guy's done thousands of case studies. He's wrote hundreds of academic papers. And at the bottom of this interview, he says this. You know, these people say that uh, they say, you know, I feel like there's this light and it's this presence of God. And they whisper and they said, I say God because you wouldn't know what I had. You wouldn't know how to explain it if I don't say God. And so they're really not saying God, but they're saying, I just can't explain it other than to say God. Uh, and then they keep going on explaining about this, this, this feeling and this light they have. And they said, listen, this isn't the God that I learned about in church. You know, this is, I'm not talking about the God I learned about in church. This is something that's much bigger. I'm saying, what church do you go to? All right, that was God, right? I mean, it's, it's like what I'm saying is, is people have this view about God that he's this big. And all I'm saying is if you can only figment in your mind the things that God can do and the things you want God to do and these earthly things that you want God to do, I want new shoes, I want a new car, I want a new job. If that's all that you expect from God, you don't know God. Because those things that God has enacted in the second covenant that are this inheritance that's imperishable and it's fading and it's waiting in heaven for you is much more than you can ever think or imagine. And you have to put your mind on those things. Because it's those things that's going to allow you to let go of these things. Right? And if all of your life is revolving around the promises of the here and now, you're never going to live out your faith. And you're, going to risk, you're, going to, you're just going to risk living your life and capitulating in your own sin. God, I know what you've promised is great up there, but I really, really, really like living with my boyfriend or girlfriend. You think, that's, you think that's better? And I'm saying you don't know God if you think that anything you can get here is better than Christ or better than the promises that he is going to give those who love him in heaven. Did I put point number three up there? Good. Okay. And I want to give it to you in three verses. And the first one, when it comes to you, uh, having your inheritance, go to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says this, Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord, Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. See, we were dead, and He had, he had to cause us. He had to make us born again. To, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance. There's something that is given to us, and it's this inheritance. And guess what? It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven, and who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So I'm saying that there's so much good, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, there's so much good about the salvation that you have in the here and now, but I'm telling you most of it, almost all of it is there. And you get a taste of it here, and you get some of it here, but you, you can't realize it all here, okay? It's like you getting, it's like when I asked my wife to marry me, and I gave her an engagement ring, okay? And in that engagement ring, I gave it to her, and I said, everything that's mine will be yours. I promise you we're going to get married. It's going to culminate. We're going to have a family, and we're going to have a life together. And what I'm saying is Christ did that in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Just jot it down. I'll read it. He did that in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In Christ, you, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so if you want to know how you get an engagement ring from God, it's when you respond to the gospel of your salvation and you believe in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Okay? So there is a promise that I gave to my wife when I gave her an engagement ring, and it was a guarantee of her inheritance until she acquired possession of it. I said, here's a ring, and then we're going to set a date, and when we set that date, we're going to walk down the aisle, we're going to get married, you're going to get my last name, we're going to go, we're going to have a life together, and all the promises that we have made are going to be fulfilled within that marriage. And what I'm saying is all of these great inheritance promises that God has given, He has given you a down payment, and it's called the Holy Spirit. He's given you a down payment, and that is an engagement ring saying, there is coming a time when I'm going to walk down that aisle, we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to eat together, we're going to celebrate, I'm going to come and I'm going to reign for a thousand years, I'm going to redeem the whole world, and we're going to live in unity for the rest of eternity. And I'm saying you've got to get to that point in your life where that's what you're thinking about. Like, you're... You know, my life at the, in the big scheme of things is not that great. You want to you know the truth? And I, what I see not that great is this. I love you guys. I love my wife. We have a great home. I mean, we have a great church. We have a great everything. But when I look at my life, I say, man, this really lacks in comparison to that which is awaiting me in glory. And that's what I mean by that, not, not that great. I don't mean that there aren't things to be grateful here. Not that I don't use everything that I have here for the glory of God, but it's just not that great. And until your mind starts going to, you know what, there's some good things that happens here, but this is just not that great. What's going to be great is the inheritance that's revealed to me. Now, in saying that, I want to take you to one more verse. Mark 10. Matthew, Mark. Second book in the New Testament. Right there, Mark 10. Because although you should get to the point where you say, you know what, life is not that great good. You're in a good spot. Okay. But there's also a lot of good things about this life, and your inheritance does transcend just the spirit that has been given to you when it comes to your inheritance right here and now. You have some other inheritances that you get right now, right now. And here they are. Mark 10, 29 through 31. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. There's that land promise again, because he's talking to people who were promised land, right? who was given this promise of the first covenant. And he says, no one who's done these things for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. He did add that, mind you, with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Okay. We see at the end of verse 29 that he's talking about the inheritance that you're going to get in eternal life. That's, that, he keeps pointing you there. In the age, you're going to get salvation, you're going to get eternal life, there's going to be all these blessings that you get, and it's going to be the inheritance that God has given you. But there are blessings in this inheritance right here and right now, and it's this. There's no one who leaves all of their stuff, all of their things, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, who will not receive houses times 100, brothers times 100, sisters times 100, mothers times 100, children and lands by the hundreds. And here's all i got to say. I have five siblings, three brothers, two sisters. Do you know how many brothers and sisters I have in this room? A lot more than that. You know how many houses I have? I have mine. And how many of you guys, if my house burns down, would let me live with you guys, with me and my wife? I have a lot of houses, don't I? I got a lot of land. I got a lot of blessings that I have in the here and now because I have an inheritance that the down payment has been given to me and we possess it together as the church of God. And it is my problem if I don't invest my life in those things, right? It is to my folly if I don't look at my brothers and sisters in Christ as an opportunity to invest in the eternal things of God. That's a great reason why we have a church right here, right now. Imagine what God could do through the life of this church if we invested our lives and our, 
our stewardships of our homes and our finances together to bring about the salvation of lost souls here in New Braunfels and throughout the Hill Country. Because we see that everything that has been given to us has been an investment that God has made in us that is a down payment of the inheritance of which we are going to acquire full possession of in heaven. Let us be a church as we finish up our final sermon in Healthy Church series. Let us be a church who really looks at these things. Your brothers and sisters who you have around you in Christ, the homes that he has so graciously bestowed upon you, the families that he's given to you, look at those as what they are. The down payment of an inheritance, the spirit that he's given you to convict you of righteousness, of sin, of judgment, and to convict you to live for the things in this life for the things of that life. Let us be that kind of church, and it'd be amazing to watch what God does in the life of this church over the next couple of years. Pray with me. God, I do pray. Sometimes it's hard to think past right now. It's hard to think past right now. It's hard to think past next week. It's hard to think past graduation. It's hard to think past my next job interview. But it's imperative for us as Christians to look past these things to the promises that we have in Christ for eternity. And, God, and those things will, will color and shade all the decisions that we have to make today. Those things are going to shade everything that we need to do today in light of eternity. And I just pray that we would, in our lives, really think about our own disqualification. And that it would drive us to greater thanksgiving. It would drive us to understand that anything we have in this life is just a gracious gift of, of you. And that we, we ought to use it. We ought to use it for your good. We ought to use it to glorify you and to bring other people to come to know you. Knowing that we are all dead in our sins and trespasses. And it's you who made us alive in Christ. God, help us have that burden to invite lost people to church, to share the gospel with our neighbors. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.